another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. Oh, behind the vinyl, back again. This time, uh, it's it's Nicholas and Darren, joined by Mr. Robert Crane. How you doing? How are you doing? I'm excited to get behind the vinyl. Oh, hell yeah. Talk <laughs> about some rock and roll, some heavy metal. Yes. Lovely. Our and youth. which which album did you make? Uh, you know, for me, I, we, we talked about this a hundred times. I laid in my bunk up all night going, oh, yeah, what about that record? But for me, it's it's got to be Iron Maiden, you know, Peace of Mind. That's That was, you know, in that era, Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind, were when I started playing bass and, and uh, introduced me to like, you know, my own style of music. Uh, my dad, I grew up, my dad was a bass player as well, and he would listen to, you know, uh, Cream and, and Zeppelin and Sabbath and I love those bands and I grew up on them but for me the first band that I connected to was Maiden as a, as a young youth in, in 83 or 82, 83 right when I heard you know those records it changed me as a musician as a player as a person and uh, it made me pick up the guitar my bass guitar and play completely different than I ever had in my whole life so I would like to talk and get behind the vinyl <laughs> Iron Maiden's uh, Peace of Mind Peace of Mind yeah. absolutely yeah. now you're um, you raised in California yep Los Angeles, California. Yep. Um, yeah, we, we did this thing a couple of years ago, Nick, um, where we were, we were over in LA. And oh, yes, right. yes. Oh, the, uh, Robert drove us around. The, the, in the tour guide. The tour guide. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was unbelievable. You were showing us this is, um, you know, this is where the Starwood used to be. This oh, is, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the rainbow. This yeah. is that. We were going to go up to. Uh, up to the, the Manson murder house and all to, that, but we couldn't get up there because of, cause no, of the No, exactly. And, and I. And I think we drove past your street and you said, I used to live there and yeah. and the, yeah. the Chili Peppers guys flee in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to walk the streets like right there on Willoughby and Genesee because I, I lived like right in West Hollywood and Halal yes. Slovak lived right on the corner for me. My sister used to date Halal, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So how, how does a California, and I've often thought this because Maiden made it to Australia in mm. a big way, mm. and I've often thought how does, how does Maiden sit in regards to California music because I can't really see Maiden – in a lot of those bands that um, from that time, sure. I, I can't really see. How, how did it find its way to you? You know, um, I think uh, the, the 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 pocket of Los Angeles I grew up in the West Hollywood area, right there. We call it the Fairfax District. Um, it, it was inundated with a lot of uh, cool record shops, Renee's Records and Aaron's Records and stuff. So we get a lot of British import records and stuff like that. And uh, we were, we were checking out a lot of early Saxon and. And bands that were coming over from the UK and stuff like that early, early on, 79, 78, 78, 79, 80, 81, right in that era, we were totally into it. All the priest truckers that were coming in. And uh, I remember checking out Stained Class when I was a youngster and, and being like, whoa, you know, you just, as a, as a young kid, again, you're looking for your own identity and the music that was going on. I mean, what was going on in the LA scene in the late seventies was, you know, Van Halen had made it. So out of LA club scene. So a lot of bands were transferring over to that style of music. I think Eddie Van Halen was really influencing a lot of players in the late seventies and early eighties. And that was like my heyday skateboarding around town as a 10 or 12 year old kid, you know, going to the Starwood, going to the rainbow or, or, Troubadour or whiskey. I could. I was too young to get into most of the shows, but we'd stand by the door with our skateboards, and the bouncer would be like, "Stand back a little bit." We'd be like, "Wait a minute, you're ruining the solo." You know, you'd be listening <laughs> to Wasp or whoever, and uh, that was kind of like my introduction to, into rock. I mean, as a kid, that's that's all we did. It was either I, I've said this a hundred times: either the drugs, uh, gangs, or or you're in a band. And and I was a little of everything, but I really. Loved playing. As I was saying earlier, my dad was a bass player, so I would pick up his bass and try to, you know, emulate stuff I heard, but I just couldn't figure out the fretting and all that. But um, so Maiden and bands like that, the British invasion of metal, if you will, uh, you know, Motorhead, all these bands, we would go to Renee's or to, Aaron, to Aaron's uh, record stores, which were right there on Melrose and just down the street, cross street from our, my high school. Uh, 
and we would we would check out the the import music and back in those days in vinyl you can literally look at the record and pull it out of the sleeve and put it on on the record you know turntable put headphones on and listen to it and be like yeah I'm getting into this and there would be like 10 record players up and kids would just be listening to whatever and like dude check this band out you know and so for me I mean obviously Iron Maiden Iron Maiden was the first my first introduction to Iron Maiden and then Killers and and uh, Number of the Beast you know was you know, obviously the switch over to Bruce Dickinson and, and we were amazed at the transition that Maiden had made uh, over those records. And we were all inspired by those records. But I think for me, again, as a player and and uh, what really shaped me musically as a kid uh, when I started to play bass and and it made me want to get my first P bass and put my, you know, mirror pick guard on it and, and you know, be as Steve Harris as I possibly could was, you know, Number of the Beast, peace of mind. That era for me was like, that was it for me. That was it. You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too. You fire musket, but I'll run you through. So when you're waiting for the next attack, you better stand, there's no turning back. The fewer sounds, the times begins. But on this battlefield, no one wins. The smell of ice smoke and horses' breath. And the virgin is a sudden
I'm just thinking that that like early 80s when I was a teenager and sure. um, so many times that I would sit in my own room yeah. dreaming of Los Angeles that <laughs> I'd never been in and oh you know those clubs and you read about the clubs and all that and you yeah. were smack dab in the middle of all yeah, that yeah yeah you know and again for my for my upbringing for, from my you know vantage point it was just it, you know what I mean? Like Mike, the bouncer from the troubadour was downstairs and you know what I mean? Lived downstairs and my dad would go, Hey Mike, you know, Rob wants to go down with his friends. And, well, I can't let him in, but he could stand by the door and we would stand by the door at the troubadour. If you looked through the door, you could see the stage. So you'd watch, Oh cool. You know, whatever bands were playing that. Right. And I was, you know, growing up in that childhood and in that era, uh, it was very free range parenting. So we were, my parents would be like, you know, be back by 12 on a school <laughs> night. You know what I mean? And we would, you know, like we had a crew of about 20, 22 of us. Wow. And, um, and we were all, you know, uh, you know, without being too heavy on our parents, we were, you know, our, we, our parents were, we were, we were very poor. All of us were poor kids and none of us were upper middle class or anything. So we were all poor and, you know, just trying to get by. And, and, uh, you know, we, we were, we were just doing our thing and, and it was, uh, it was just, you know, it was a lot of bad things going on and, and we, you know, like every kid and, but growing up in that scene, um, it, it kind of forced you to make a choice. You know, again, you could be in, I mean, it's very easy to get into drugs. And thankfully I just never had that, that, uh, genetic makeup to get addicted to anything or to waste my time with any of that. But I really was inspired by music and I was always very driven as a kid. And so were a lot of the kids, believe it or not, in our neighborhood. I mean, you had Saul Hudson who was, you know, right. years, my sister's age, uh, who was driven and you could see that early on, you know, whether it be a BMXing, we would see him BMXing on his BMX bikes or, uh, or playing in Titus Sloan, which was the band he was in. I used to tech for his bass player, Ron Schneider. And so, uh, you know, we were around it. And it, again, it's kind of weird. You think about it in today's terms, you're like, you know, well, Slash is Slash. Yeah. But to us, he was Saul Hudson. And I bought my first, my friend Serge Shikarian and I bought our first distortion switches, uh, Ross distortion pedals from Hollywood Music from Saul Hudson, because he worked there. And we were like, you know, hey, Saul, you know, and. <laughs> You know, it's uh, Tracy Guns, you know, he was Tracy Ulrich back then and, and Melly Guns and, and we went to school together and just that was like our era. And that was it, it, I, I've said this in, in other interviews. Uh, when I was a kid, it wasn't like, you know, I want to I want to get a be in a band and get a record deal and play clubs. It was like when I get a record deal because everyone did it. It was just yeah. what everyone was doing. It was like yeah. getting the cool skateboard, you know, I'm going to save money and get the skateboard because I can. And that it was all attainable for us. And, and uh, it didn't, not until later when I met other musicians are like, you know, I always had aspirations to come into California or to Hollywood and, and, and experiencing that it was always just kind of, I don't think it was taken for granted, but it was just what my upbringing was. You know what I mean? Just like for you guys, you're like, Oh, that's just a local pub. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, that's kind of my local pubs. Yeah. And, um, and I'm thankful that I was, you know, my, my, my mom ended up migrating to that part of Los Angeles and I was able to grow up there because I could have easily been 10 blocks South and ended up in the gang or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I ended up in the, for the early late seventies, early eighties in that, that uh, that oven of you know of of creative uh, everything that was yeah. going on there and it was great you know yeah. I mean, it was really cool inspirational to nice. see everyone playing everyone played that was the cool thing uh, Dave Kirshner from um, from Velvet Revolver right. dude I played in a band with him when I was sixteen and and uh, we jammed a little bit and I mean I've known all those guys since I was a little kid and yeah. so you see him now and it's like oh yeah cool man you know <laughs> well, well, well you, your your background too like you. Um, like you said, you teched for, yeah, for, yeah. Um, for the bass player. And, yeah, yeah, you teched for, for Poison. Everyone, yeah, for, mm. You also did some work 
like with um, John Entwistle, right? Well, I worked at a club called the China Club, which was a big LA, uh, New York club, and they moved to LA. And I took you guys by there. Used to be Kathy Grant, absolutely, yep. and it was called the China Club, and it was a pretty exclusive club. And uh, I got hired on by my roommate as just like a day to day schlep guy, you know, load the beer in, kind of clean up, and make sure everything was ready for the night before. And the house band in the club was uh, they had a Thursday night jam, and it was uh, it was put together by Smokey Robinson's sound guy Alan Kaufman. And the house band was Ginger Baker on drums, oh. John Entwistle on bass, Skunk Baxter on guitar, and Joe Walsh on guitar. Jesus, and have, yeah, and wow. they would have, and that was the house band. Wow, and, and they would they would have a jam every Thursday night, and whatnot, and um, and you know. I would just be, hey, will you help set up? And so Entwistle had his Trace Elliott gear st- stored there, and Ginger had a drum set, and Skunk Baxter had his, you know, seat with his little practice amp or his jam amp, and they all had their gear there, so we all just helped set up. Well, when Entwistle went back to England to do the Who, uh, he had this all this massive, you know, Trace Elliott gear. My, my boss at the time, Ray Ray, was like, uh, hey, kid, they called me kid, hey, kid, you know, uh, we can't store this. Can do you have somewhere you can store John's stuff? And John, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I knew him. I'd see him all the time. And he's like, he's looking at me. He didn't really talk that much. And he's like, yeah, you know, I go, well, I could store it at my place, but I mean, I, I mean, and he goes, well, you can use it if you want. I'm like, really? All right. So I swear, I mean, I'm not even kidding. I was in this band Lancy at the time. You would go see our band. And I had all the who cases with the trace Elliott's and everyone's like, where did you get that? I'm like, John Entwistle loaned it to me. People are like, what? I mean, you know what I mean? You know, and I mean, people hear my life stories and I'm like, that's the truth. That's just how I grew up. You know what I mean? And and uh, people are like, John Entwistle gave you his basic company. He loaned it to me for two years and I used it for two years. And I was poor. I mean, I didn't have any, I had like a little practice amp and my guitar player had like, you know, a half stack and I had like this massive <laughs> arena John Entwistle room. But, you know, it was, it was killer. Yeah. I almost got a buzzard based off him, which is another good story. Anyway. That's a great story. Yeah. I've heard the story. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great story. Yeah. But I was too much of a stupid kid to, to realize what was going on at the moment. It was four o'clock in the morning. So I, didn't, I was just like, can I go back to bed now? So yeah, for another time. But yeah, awesome. <laughs>
sorry, bass player. Your, your dad was a bass player. Yeah, um, absolutely. My grandfather was a flamenco guitar player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? He was okay. in our family, yeah, yeah. So when did you start playing bass? So I picked a, a classical guitar. My dad gave me the, the Mel Bay Book of Chords, which is like, you know, I guess an introduction to basic beginning guitar stuff. So I, um, I picked up the guitar when I was about 11 or 12. And to be honest with you, I was so invested in skateboarding and bike riding and, and just being out with the kids, troublemaking, going to the beach. We would go San Monica Beach uh, on the four when I was like 10. And if you think about it now and you're like, what? But I would go for two days. I would get $3 and I would go to the beach and I'd sleep on the beach with my friends. And we'd get up the next day, Saturday, we'd boogie board all day and then sleep Saturday night, go to some girl's house and spend the <laughs> night and then come home Sunday. And my mom would be like, hey, how was it? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And $3, you know, I was like, you know, I could live like a king. Wow. And um, so I was more into that scene at that time, although I started to play. But in, in, uh, in eighth uh, grade uh, at Bancroft Junior High, which everybody saw, everybody took guitar lessons from this uh, guitar teacher there. And he taught us flamenco guitar and, and classical guitar. So we all picked up, you know, that bug. And so everybody played guitar. So by the time ninth grade, eighth, ninth grade came around, everyone was playing guitar. And I was the only one that had a bass in the house. So uh, everyone's like, dude, man, you got to go get your dad's bass. So I was like, oh, but I can play Crazy Train better than you can. So, you know, I went and got the bass and that's how I switched over to bass. So I was about 14. And by the time I was 15, I was playing clubs like uh, Trudor and, and all the all the different things in in uh, just a band with friends, you know what I mean? But we would, yeah. So that's how I started playing bass. And again, it was just, uh, it was rudimentary. I mean, it wasn't like I was a great bass player, but I could play. And, and uh, I, you know, I played with my fingers uh, out of the gate. My dad was the one who was like, listen, if you're going to play bass, you got to play all styles. You can't just play with your fingers. You got to learn how to play with the pick too. So I'm, I'm thankful for my dad that I learned how to play guitar and uh, I had the articulations of a pick player, but I could play with my fingers. I could gallop. I could do all that. And then, uh, and then I, you know, would see flea again. I'll remind you, I was a kid. We would play, you know, skateboards out on the street and we'd see this guy walking by playing the trumpet. And we thought he was, and for no, you know, we thought he was, might've been, you know, disabled or something. Cause he was like, we'd be like, what's wrong with that guy? You know what I mean? And we were young. I'm mean, nine or eight or nine, 10 years old. And, and turns out it was Flea. He was an yeah. amazing musician. So I saw him play in, you know, funk style. And uh, I think it was Freaky Styley when that record came out that I heard his style and it got me into slap bass. And so I started getting into slap bass. And so I, I got pretty proficient at all three styles. And that kind of carried me, you know what I mean, uh, into different situations. I was able to kind of, you know, but I mean, I would never have played in Black Star Riders had I not had the articulations for the pick. You know what I mean? Same yeah. thing with Rat or Lynch Mom. I never would have played in those bands had I not had the articulations with my fingers. So um, I was lucky to, to, to have been able to pick all those styles. I was a kid, yeah.
Let's swing it back to um, Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. <laughs> what? So Steve Harris, obviously one of the you know one of the gods of bass. When when did that kind of uh, that kind of influence come into? When did he start influencing? You know, so like uh, you know, obviously I, the first so- Maiden song I ever heard was was Rathchild, and and it it um, I was like listening to it. I remember hearing it at my friend Serge's house, and you know we were probably you know. Uh, enjoying some oregano and uh and I'm just <laughs> laying there like wow man what's it and he Serge Shikarian who, who's a really good friend of mine and we're still great friends um we kind of got into music together you know playing and stuff and and uh, we would jam there's there's some photos of me and him with our first you know, guitarist together in his room we would we would lose ourselves in every import record we get our hands on and um and he was the one who turned me on to Iron Maiden's Rathchild and I was like he's like you gotta listen to space where he's great and I was like whoa like, well, how is he doing that? And then, you know, quite literally just laying on the floor, you know, in his room with the lights off late at night, you know what I mean? Trying to pick up that thing. And he was, you know, playing guitar I mean, in the dark and, and, uh, we just lay there and, you know, just at night as quiet as we could. His mom was like, you know, search, turn the music down. You know what I mean? And I would, you know, again, it was a very transient lifestyle that we lived. So I'd spend the night there, you know, 10, five nights a week and we would just play music. Wow. So that's what really got me into it. And then, um, what what made me into a better bass player or really want and again this is 82 80 81 82 83 and and so i just started learning and the first song i actually learned was flight of icarus oh it was yeah because it was from this record yeah yeah, yeah. it was it was easy for me to do the the you know a e f g and and you know i was like oh i could hear that and i could pick it up even as you know not of great as bass player as i was but i started to pick it up and believe it or not i could get the gallop i was able to do a three-finger gallop which i don't do a two-finger gallop like i was able to do a three-finger gallop that was about as so that's kind of where my finger placement was at but i was able to do it pretty much out of the gate which is i thought was like i was like hey i can do that it's just like you could do that so it was it was you know it was cool that i was i was able to do it and then i just slowly but surely started to pick up i think i always had a pretty good ear uh, mm. to pick up music because i i could learn stuff relatively quickly and um i remember some of the older players uh, uh would, would uh again you know the mark vachans and the and the dave krishners and guys like that were like wow man you're a better bass player than i thought you were and i was like 16 and, and uh so i could play some you know some rush and some you know i could get away but again ron schneider the guy who played in, in titus sloan with slash he uh he was a rush guy he had a ricky and an ampeg and he was the guy and ron could play all that stuff so i tech for ron and i would watch him and learn how to play stuff from ron schneider as well and he was great with his fingers so it, it it was you know all of those days of just sitting there playing i mean again that was going on in our neighborhood cool as we would you know listen to early loudness or you know whoever and just just trip out on music which is kind of cool you know what I mean? very cool it's not like yeah. that anymore you know? no I, I just think in flight of icarus there's a henry rollins does some funny stuff about iron maiden and, and exactly flight of icarus and and he mimics bruce dickinson and saying like that that they uh they write songs about books they read or something like that yeah. it's just funny yeah, as hell yeah <laughs> i'm i'm in a, i'm in and i'm a victim of henry rollins uh, <laughs> you're, you're a victim well he, he talks about a rat concert he went to oh yes yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. we're the saying <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. He was there with Tom Morello at the show. Oh, oh really? Yeah, kidding. Yeah, 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 I remember. But I didn't have a fan. He said the bass player had a fan. Whoosh, his voice getting blown. I'm like, I didn't have a fan. <laughs> but he is correct about the rat shit or cat shit because Stephen Pierce used to say, "Oh, yeah. like that rat shit. It's better than cat shit." <laughs> Love it. It's funny. Yeah. Oh, okay, back to me.
following up uh, Number of the Beast with uh, Peace of Mind. Yeah. yeah. You know. Also the first album with Nick and McBrain. Yeah. First, first yeah, yeah, album with yeah. Nick and McBrain. And, and that was also a transition for me because, you know, I was a huge Clive Burr fan. I thought Clive had such mm. a cool swing to him. And uh, and when, and you know, again, there you know, news in those days traveled as slow as oh, yeah. hell, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like the next Kareem or the next Kareem magazine or the next, you know, burn or something we get our hands on that we would find anything out. But and, and where I, would you find those magazines? Yeah, well, we would find them because Centerfold, there was, a, again, another slash connection. He worked at Centerfold, the magazine stand right there on the corner. Exactly. Of, of yes, Fairfax, been, so we drove oh, by it. Yeah, I I there. We're with him, actually. Yeah, we yeah. went in there one day. Oh, you went in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he worked right there at Fairfax and Melrose right at, at Centerfold. So we would, you know, Centerfold had all the magazines. I mean, you you would get them. But again, it was, you know, a month, a month behind. Yes. You know, they would print it a month later. We would receive it. Exactly. You know what I mean? We were getting, you know, we were behind. But- so we received, or I purchased uh, Peace of Mind before I knew that Clive was out of the band. And I remember going, and we were like, who's that guy? <laughs> yeah. What? Where's, you know, we were, lo- you know, dude, what happened? You know what I mean? And, um, and I remember just, just listening to it going, uh, wow, this guy can swing. Cause you know, yeah. uh, and, and the great thing is it opens with, uh, uh, we're Eagles there, right? And uh, mm. uh, what does it open with? Yeah, that's what it opens with. Uh, no, uh, what does Peace of Mind open yeah. with? It opens with um, where Eagles did. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so this is a great story. Um, and there's a video of this. Uh, so we heard that and I was like, you know, I was like, what? This guy's killer. I mean, I remember just sitting listening to the whole record again, me and Serge. And years later, 2009, I did a NAM show thing that I MD'd. And I, um, it was, I got Brian Tishy to play drums and myself and different singers. And, and what the idea was, was this promoter had an idea for NAM of 2009 at the Anaheim Convention Center was four guitar players play their classics with one backing band. So I, I was hired to be the MD of the backing band. So I got Brian Tishy, Wayne Finley, and the guitar players were Michael Schenker, uh, Warren D. Martini, George Lynch, and Tracy Guns. So we did different variations. But for the Michael Schenker setup, uh, Brian was playing drums and there's a video of us switching over from Michael Shanker to Warren Martini with the curtains drawn and Nico's there on the side of the stage. And he's, you know, he's a little pissed, but he's, you know, he's having, oh, and, and I didn't know this. I'm quite literally tuning my bass. And you have to realize the videos from Brian Tishy behind the amp line. Yeah. He's talking to Nico. He goes, man, I'm a big fan, bro. We play, you know, Regal's there. Show me how you play that on my kit real quick before we go on. The curtain's drawn so no one can see. Nico's laughing. So the video starts with Nico. He's like, are you ready? And he does it. And I don't know. I'm just tuning my bass. So I don't know what's going on. I just hear the intro. And I go, and Nico goes, and I look up and I'm like, oh my God, it's Nico. And he does it again. And we literally play into the verse together. Uh-huh. And it's, I'm like, what? Warren Martini's in the background. I'm like, oh my God. You and Nico were playing together. And for me as a kid and all my friends were like, dude, what? And it's, you know, for me again, that record really shaped me as a player and as a person. Yeah. And, and to be able to play the intro to that one record that again, I was so questioning the, the, the departure of, of Clive Burr right. and to hear that great intro of, of, of that record, it just kind of sets the tone for the record. Doesn't it? It's oh, just, hell yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean, it's nine songs of just, you know, amazingness. Yeah. And I was happy because, uh, Number of the Beast is only eight song, uh, eight, eight track record, and I was like, "This one's got nine. Like we were, we were stoked that they give us an extra song. You know what I mean? And uh, so it was just, it was just cool. You know what I mean? I, I just remember, uh, again, as a kid, being so influenced not only by by Steve's playing. I thought that that record as well um, introduced a few different styles musically. I thought uh, it wasn't as 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 deep 
um, musically, they didn't get as progressive, if you will. And some of the some of the songs, Flight of Icarus being one of them, I thought it was a little bit more of a commercialized version of what they were doing, which I appreciated. I loved, you know, the progressiveness, but I wasn't quite good enough a player to be able to like go on those journeys with them as much. Right. And I wanted to play along. You know what I mean? I wanted to be, I used to, my mom and dad, I can't tell you how many times would walk into my room and I'd be in the mirror, my aunt going to play. <laughs> Hi mom. You know? I was just living it. You know, I, I, I used to tell people, uh, you know, before I played a concert in my life, I'd played 500 yeah. concerts in my bedroom. Yeah. You know, I was ready, dude. Do you know what I mean? I was seasoned. I'd played every arena in the world in my mind, you know, and uh, and played with my favorite bands. So it was cool. Yeah.
when, when did you first see Maiden for the first time? So um, the first time I saw Maiden was at, um, I'm going to think here. Let's say it was at the Summer Strut in Anna, at Anaheim. And that was in 1980, about 83, 84, about in that era. Right. It was uh, just before Power of Slave. So they were on Peace of Mind. Yep. And, uh, and I just remember seeing, uh, we were, you know, again, it was a, it was a festival and, um, and it was so far back, but I just remember being there and sitting with my friends and being like, you know, cause I couldn't make my way, although it was a festival, I couldn't make my way to the crowd. It was so jam packed. And, um, and I just, I remember seeing them the first time, uh, the second time I saw them was on the power slave tour. Oof. And, um, and I, again, I didn't have the money for it, but a gal that we knew, um, her, her dad had bought her tickets for her, her, uh, bar mitzvah right. and, and our bat mitzvah and, and, uh, and three of the people couldn't go. And, um, she, she, and I didn't really even know her. She kind of came up to me and she was like, I remember just her face going, she's like, I don't really know you, but I know you like Iron Maiden and my dad bought me these tickets and you guys want to go. Like, Are you drunk? Of course I want to go. And so we went, we didn't know any of the people. And, you know, again, we were, we were metalers. We were, we were Heshers. I mean, we, you know, we had our G jackets with denim and leather and, and jeans and patches and studs and long hair. And the parents were like, who in the heck are these street urchins? And we quite literally were street urchins, holes in our shoes. And it was, it was an amazing experience. And they had great tickets. Uh, they were pretty good tickets. And I remember uh, we were on, um, we were on Adrian's side because it was just Adrian at the time. Mm. So it had been stage left. And, um, and I just remember watching Steve and just being, in awe of, of what was going on. And he was playing that, uh, the Leardo bass or whatever, the, uh, the blue one that wasn't, it was P bass. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And right. I was, I remember being really bummed about that. <laughs> and, like, and they were all kind of playing those weird guitars. And I was like, dude, like where are the classic guitars? <laughs> like where's Adrian's Ibanez, dude? What are you doing? You know what I mean? But you know, as a kid, um, you, 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 you think, you know, your, your perception is, is, is not reality. A lot of the time. Right. And being a musician now, you kind of understand it, but I'll tell you this, um, Steve inspired me as well, uh, to play, uh, that he always played that, that his blue P bass, you know what I mean? And, and I, uh, I had an affinity for that. So, uh, my first P bass was a, a, a black precision bass. Actually, my first bass was a different bass, but, um, it was a Memphis copy bass, but the first Fender bass I ever got, I was 14 and a half. And it was a, it's a black 57 reissue Fender Precision Bass. And um, I saved up and bought it from Howie Huberman at Guitars R Us on, on Sunset. And um, I still play that bass to this day. Same bass. I've played it on every record. I have it out here right now. Nice. And uh, I played that same bass and I put a chrome pickguard on it. And it's had a chrome pickguard on it since I was, uh, so it's black with a maple neck and a chrome pickguard since I was about 14. And um, I only recently took the pickup off the, the pickguard off because you know I'm playing with Scott Gorham. It looked a little funky, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And and Scott was like, I, I remember coming to the first time I ever auditioned, I played that bass, and uh, and and I remember them there, you know, Scott looking at. Oh, yeah, I was like, what a! I didn't even think, you know, hey man, you know, you Phil, I didn't put it together. In my I don't know what I was thinking, but Dave Sabo from the uh, um, yeah. was was there. It was a long story. It was at a sound check that I auditioned. He's like, dude, you put that pick on on purpose? And I was like, oh. <laughs> Steve Harris, bro. Although he got it from Phil. Yeah. You know what I mean? For me, as a kid, you know, I didn't, I didn't, Phil wasn't on my radar yet. You right. know what I mean? Uh, uh, although I knew who Lizzie was and I loved Lizzie at that time. Uh, it wasn't on my radar. Maiden was before for me. Yep. And, and, um, and so I had that, that scratch plate on there since I was 14 and I only just recently took it off and I put the original, which is a gold anodized pick card back yep. on it. 
But uh, yeah, so I still play the same bass, much like Steve Harris did throughout his whole career or for the majority of his right. career. And now it's the white, you know, the Western bass. Yeah. And uh, I still, I, that really, that really uh, influenced me, you know, like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And why would I play 500 other basses? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. in the Flight of Icarus <laughs> video, he's playing an Ibanez black bass. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I only just recently met Steve through Ricky Warwick. Um, we did... Uh, Rambling Man a couple years ago. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And British Lion played with us. And let me tell you, if I wasn't, you know, brushing my teeth and getting my eyebrows plucked for that gig, I don't know what I was doing. I was like, you know. And how, how was he? It was cool. Oh, he's such a sweet guy. Yeah. What, yeah. A, uh, uh, what an experience to, they say don't meet your heroes, but he's one hero that I was very thankful that I met. And uh, just a regular guy, you know, yeah. raining out. Um, everyone's, you know, running around in their, you know, new clothes and hey, I'm a rock star. And Steve's wearing galoshes and a pair of shorts and a windbreaker. And, you know, he doesn't he's care. You know, what I mean? he's just doing his thing. And yeah. it's um, it's very telling. You know, it's yeah. it's he's just a real person. He's a, he just does it for the love of music. And, yeah. You know, and and um, that's why I, people, some people in America, like I went to Maiden on the uh, Final Frontiers tour, and uh, and a lot of people were pissed that they weren't playing much of the old Cadillac exactly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we played in in, in they played in, in uh, an out outskirts of LA where the US festival was this yep. place in Glen Helen and it was 35,000 people yeah. sold out yeah. bonfires going on it was and pe- my friends were like dude I can't believe Maine can still do this and I'm like I can yeah. yep. they're still so connected to who they are yeah. yep. and and that's why we appreciate it, you know and for me to go to a Maiden concert I used to make fun of my wife who'd go to Bon Jovi and spend $600 at the merch booth <laughs> I was at Maiden like look I'll take the coffee mug I want the frisbee yeah. I want three of those sweaties I want those I want the wristbands I mean I, I was like walked out with, you know what I mean? My friends are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I bought it all because I am a fan and, and I, I, I am, um, you know, that's my band. I'm still loyal to it. And which in America is not very common.
What I remember from from that time and, and uh, peace of mind was that Maiden played in Dortmund in Germany. Westfalen mm. There was a, like a big festival with Maiden, Priest, yeah, Ozzy Osbourne, Def Leppard, and, and so on. Mm. And that was aired on Swedish TV, which was a really rare thing back in 1983, 84 or something. And what I remember was that they they killed off Eddie. Yeah, uh, at that show, I heard about. And that. me and my friends were like, "So what are they going to do now? Yeah. Eddie's going to be dead. Yeah, what's happening? They can't kill him. No." And then we saw the saw the video of it. They killed him. <laughs> so what's going on? <laughs> Is Eddie's gone? He's not coming back. But that was a big thing. <laughs> oh, absolutely! No, no. Uh, and and the artwork for those records. Oh yeah, it, it was, Derek it was, Riggs yeah, and all that. Yeah, such a great <clears throat> idea. The theme. The, the yeah. But what was his name again? Derek Riggs. Yeah. What, yeah. what a great. Uh, I read this thing where uh, he had turned in the number of the beast artwork for a single and they were like, no, that's too good. We're going to save that for later. And, and uh, I just, I just thought it was brilliant. Everything that they did. Oh, yeah. I remember getting Ed Hunter. We were on portrait when I was in rat portrait, Columbia and maiden had signed a portrait. All right. And, uh, and I went with John Claudner because he knew I was a big maiden fan. He gave me the, the, the box set with the, with the head and everything. All right. Yeah. yeah. Like, there were all the reissues. I was like, you're kidding me. He's like, yeah, I thought you'd like this. I'm like, really? And he gave it to me when we were going, he was taking me to the Greek amphitheater oh, yeah. in LA at the time, which is a small venue. I graduated. That's where I graduated. Uh, well, you know, my high school graduation was over. It's a 5,000. All right. But many were playing there. And, and it was, it was in 99. Yeah. And, uh, so I was like, yeah, I want to go see Maiden. So we went to see Maiden and, um, and, um, and uh, we went to see Maiden, and uh, I met Steve briefly. I just shook his hand. But Kalodner was, you know, standing with me, and I was like 10th row, and I was going crazy. But he had given me this Ed Hunter thing, and I didn't want to put it down. Do you know what I mean? Because I thought if I put it down, someone would see it. Yeah. So I was like, you know, hey, man, how you doing? And I was like, what? You can put that down. I'm like, oh, God. So the whole night, I had this huge head. Hey, Steve, good to meet you. You know what I mean? He was probably like, get away from me. But uh, I remember being extremely honored to be, uh, you know, on the same label mates. Yeah. The first yeah. time that we were, but it was cool. Yeah. Nice. Was very awesome. Excellent, yeah. man. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. Much, man. Pleasure. Great talking sure. Maiden with you. Yeah. Love me. Love me some Maiden. <laughs> and we'll do yeah. it again. We'll pick another Maiden album next yeah. time. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds yeah. great. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. All righty, guys. Very cool. cool. Cheers. Cheers.